0: Uh, Good morning. Is everyone able to hear me? Excellent. Good morning to those of you who are joining us on the Facebook live stream. It is good to be with you all this morning. Thank you Andy and worship team for leading us so well and introducing a new song this morning. So thank you for that. Wow, It's, uh, it's starting to feel like normal. Thankful for that. You know, some of you know that one of my Pleasures in life. I don't do it a lot as as much as I used to, but I enjoy watching cooking shows on TV. My favorite celebrity chef, as you'll notice in the bulletin, is a man named Gordon Ramsay. Ramsay is an award-winning celebrity chef. He's an instructor of chefs, a restaurateur. His television personality has largely been built around the concept of him going into failing restaurants and showing them everything that they're doing wrong and helping them to fix it. How many people have watched Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmare? Okay, most people know what I'm talking about. So you'll realize that a common theme in every single episode is this, that he'll tell them everything that's wrong, and the owners can never recognize why their restaurants are failing. In every situation, there's always the two same problems. There's bad food and bad leadership always it's always the same problem but when they consider their restaurants they can never see it they say it's the economy or there's no customers or the neighborhood has changed there's too much competition but Gordon always finds the two same things bad food bad leadership and i've used this illustration before because i've long believed that it's the same for churches in the providence of the lord sometimes will ch- churches will go through ups and downs seasons of strength and seasons of weakness however When you see a church that's consistently failing or straying from the Lord or characterized by problems of sin and division that ought not to characterize a local church, I guarantee it's always the same two things, bad food and bad leadership. Always, always, always. Bad food meaning that the church lacks the good and pure food of God's word, and the doctrines that are found in defensible and accurate interpretation of the Bible. And bad leadership, meaning that the church is wrongly ordered, that leadership is wrongly structured. It's not c- comprised of qualified men or where the leadership of the church functions as a club and doesn't enact the discipline of the church to keep the church pure or any combination of those factors. Now, I want to encourage us against a false sense of security and pride at Woodside because, indeed, we have made great strides doctrinally and in terms of church structure in the past many years. But I want to warn you against a false sense of pride and security. Don't, don't look at that and say, well, that doesn't apply to Woodside. He's talking about all those churches out there. Like, let's not have that sense of pride And security, regardless of the growth and progress that the Lord has enabled us to make, we still must take heed to the passage that we'll look at in 1 Timothy. So today we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll be looking at the end of the chapter, verse 17 through 25. And today we'll see what Paul tells Timothy about church leadership. Think of Paul as the Gordon Ramsay of the churches in Ephesus, and he charges the manager, Timothy, to ensure that they are rightly taught and rightly ordered. In other words, to ensure that they have good food and good leadership. And so here, at the end of chapter 5, Paul will give him some instructions regarding the leadership of pastors. So let's read, starting in verse number 17. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. The title of my sermon today is The Apostle Paul's Church Nightmares. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into this text. Gracious God. And Father, I confess this morning the weakness of the human messenger to deliver these eternal truths. So I would ask that you would be with me and that the word would go forth in the power of your spirit. I pray that it would accomplish its work in Woodside. Lord, I ask that nothing that is of me would be remembered at the end of this sermon, but that the principles that are true and an accurate exposition of scripture, may you allow them to be uh, remembered and embedded upon our understanding that Christ would be valued and treasured and the commands that he has given us to rightly order a church would be heeded. We ask all this in his name, amen. So once again, I've been given... Probably the most controversial text here. So, you know, Henry, I I could have done the deacons. Mike, I could have done the widows, but you guys gave me this text about correcting the. What in the world? Okay. So, my four points are this honoring elders, point number one, honoring elders. Point number two, correcting elders. Point number three, being equitable in church leadership. Point number four, being judicious in church leadership. Now, some helpful context that you need to understand Timothy's role and mission in Ephesus is this. You, you may know that Paul brought the gospel to Ephesus, and he ministered there for a total of three years, establishing and building up the church. When he left Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, there were already multiple pastors there, so we can I- infer that in Ephesus there's either one big church or multiple smaller churches after after the three years of ministry. In any case, Paul leaves Timothy at Ephesus to maintain the work that he had started, specifically that he might be watchful of false teaching that would be coming into the church. And this letter is written to instruct, instruct Timothy how to establish proper order in the church. So we call that church polity. Okay, so this is a sermon about church polity or some aspects of it. Some things in the book can be a little confusing for us because you might wonder something like, okay, if Timothy is already a pastor, then why does he need to know how to hire another pastor or pay a pastor or ordain a pastor he's already a pastor but it'll serve you well to know that yes he's a pastor but he would be the one to disciple other pastors and to teach and implement order in other churches so that they too can know how to hire a pastor and pay a pastor etc the things that Paul writes to Timothy are not just for his instruction but for the instruction of the churches that would be established under his oversight and for us today Let me offer an illustration that might help you understand a little better the role of Timothy. He's not just a pastor, but think about it like this. Think of Timothy as similar to uh, our lead pastor, Matthew Shores. Think of our little part of 58th Street as Ephesus. And in our Ephesus, we have one big church, Woodside Community Church, of which Matthew Shores is the lead pastor. And then we have multiple smaller churches That we have somewhat of a relationship with. So we have Ebenezer Baptist Church up the street. We have the Indonesian Christian Church that meets here in the afternoons. And then we have the Bethel Nepali Church a couple blocks away. All of which may come to Matthew Shores and ask him for advice. And they come to him and they say, hey, Hey, Pastor Matthew, how do we ordain a pastor? Or we need a new pastor. How do we know who to hire? Or we have so many ministries going on. It's just so busy. How do we find some good deacons? So he's the one among them with the seminary degree, so they look to him for some leadership. And Timothy's role in Ephesus, it's similar, but it's even more deliberate and authoritative than that because he has been specifically charged by the Apostle Paul for that task of preventing false teaching and promoting order in the church. And with that in mind, we'll look at Paul's instructions to honor elders, correct elders, be equitable in church leadership, Be judicious in church leadership. And so even if you think church polity is a boring subject, take heed to the words of scripture so that we can always strive for good food and good leadership here at Woodside. So honoring elders, point number one, verse 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. In last week's text, we saw in verse 1 of this chapter that, that you're not supposed to rebuke an elder. I believe that it's talking about how Timothy would relate to older men in the church. Don't be harsh with them and treat them as fathers, he says. Now in this verse, it's the same word used, elder or older man, but it's talking about something different. It's talking about the church office of elders or pastors, It's the same Greek word for both old men and church elders, so it's context that will help you determine what is being spoken about. And likely, either old men or church elders would both have been older in age than Timothy, so this chapter begins with telling Timothy the disposition of the heart that he is supposed to have towards these older men. Be they older men in the church or elders that will serve alongside of him in the ministry. Now, here's the charge. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And he offers clarification. Verse 18, don't muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So let's break this down a little bit. You've got the elders or the pastors of the church. And Paul says to Timothy, when you establish churches and teach them, train them, you will help to, those churches to ordain their elders or their pastors, to set them aside for gospel ministry. And he says, here's what I want, Timothy. I want you to ensure that the churches honor their pastors. What specifically does he mean by honor? Is it simply the idea of respecting or thinking well of someone or giving them praise? Yes, all those things are included. But it's not, it's not less than that. Some passages that would reiterate that idea. 1 Corinthians 5, it says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Hebrews 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You know, many people serve us in our day to day lives, and we esteem them very highly because of their work. Do you frequent a coffee shop and the barista knows your order before you say it? Do you have a doctor that you like going to because of their empathy and their professionalism? Do you have a contractor or handyman that you rely on? We have that at church. Our church's plumber and our, our contractor, who does uh, a lot of the renovations around here, I esteem them very highly because of their work. So, this is not a foreign concept to us. Now apply that to our church. Do you have a high regard in love for the work of your pastors? And I believe that we should. But there's something more that Paul is going for in the term honor, which is why he gives a clarification in verse number 18. He quotes Deuteronomy 25.4 about not muzzling the ox. Now the ox, what a strange verse for Paul to throw in the New Testament here. In agriculture, they would use oxen in a variety of ways. Oxen would be used to plow the field to prepare it for planting. And when the grain would be harvested, they would use oxen to stomp on the piles of grain to crush it and to separate the edible kernels from the inedible husks. And in Deuteronomy 25 verse 4, the Old Testament law says do not muzzle the ox or don't put a cover over its mouth when it's threshing out the grain, meaning don't prevent the ox from eating while it's doing the labor. Now, this is a curious verse in Deuteronomy itself because it's sandwiched between a couple sections of laws. So let me tell you what they are. The first section in Deuteronomy 25 is how a judge administers a beating to a convicted criminal. And the next section of Deuteronomy 25 is a man's obligation to marry his brother's widow and raise up children to his name. So it's just very weird that there's the ox in between beating a criminal and marrying your brother's widow. What does the ox have to do with anything, right? So why is that there in Deuteronomy? And then is Paul using that verse rightly in the New Testament? So it almost seems like he's just pulling the, this verses out of context in Deuteronomy. It's out of context in the t- what is going on? Can Paul legitimately apply that to pastoral ministry? The Jewish commentator Rashi, lived about a1,000 years ago, would say that Paul's handling of this verse is ridiculous, because he specifically wrote that this verse about the ox cannot be applied to a man, which is what Paul is doing. So what's going on here? Let's be good interpreters of scripture. First, the ox does make sense in the context of Deuteronomy. I'll tell you why. Um, first of all, it's the word of God. That's why it, uh, it makes sense. But uh, a theme that you see woven through, throughout that section of Deuteronomy is this, justice and mercy. So in the preceding chapter, Deuteronomy 24, it's about not taking advantage of your hired labors. So that's justice. And it talks about leaving some grain and produce for the foreigners and the poor and the sojourners among you. That's mercy. Then in Deuteronomy 25, it talks about administering corporal punishment to a convicted criminal. That's justice. And then it talks about there being a prohibition on cruel and humiliating punishment. That's mercy. Then the section on marrying your brother's widow is about justice, not letting your brother's name be blotted out and performing your familial obligations. But it's also about mercy, caring for your brother's widow. Um, And then within that section, Moses says, don't even be unjust." to your oxen when they're working for you and be merciful to their needs so it goes along with the theme of justice and mercy and Moses says like you even have to think about that at the level of your livestock don't even be cruel to your animals and so Paul takes that verse and he's arguing from lesser to greater essentially saying if that's how you treat even your livestock if that's what God wants even of your farm animals then what about the labors of the gospel ministry There's another passage where Paul quotes that verse about the ox, and I'll read it for you because it gives a great deal of clarification and depth. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It starts in verse 7, and he says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing a crop. If we, talking about himself and Barnabas, if we have sown spiritual things among you, you Corinthians... Is it too much if we reap material things from you? Moving on in the passage, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So honor, I believe it's a euphemism for financial compensation. When we have a guest speaker, we give them a love gift. We call that an honorarium. It's the usage of money to demonstrate regard for someone's work. And as a church, we need to understand that there is a theology of how you pay and maintain a pastor. All of us are called to serve God in our various capacities. Now, some of you, you witness your neighbors, you disciple and evangelize uh, your your friends. You um, make meals for new mothers. You visit the sick and elderly. You spend time on the phone with people. You, some of you do labors around the churches cleaning and repairing and beautification. You participate in the worship service. That is the obligation and prerogative of every believer. But we all have a life to maintain. We can't do that full time for for the Lord, right? However, there's some that the church calls to vocational service where the church says that your work, your labor is non-negotiable for us to have in this body. And so we want to buy your labor to be dedicated to the Lord's work. So the exchange is that the pastor will refrain from the anxieties of maintaining himself and his family members uh, through other means and take financial compensation from the church. But part of that trade-off is that the pastor also exchanges the predictability and protections of a secular job in exchange for the unpredictability and stress and anxiety of a ministry where there can be seasons of God's abundance and seasons of lack or difficulty. And so Paul says to Timothy, as you're establishing and ordering these churches and teaching them, make sure that principle is taught and implemented. Now, what does it mean to count someone worthy of double honor? You'll hear all kinds of explanations about this and I I won't give you uh, an answer I'll just give you principles you'll hear some explanations um, which are like this some will say that you look at the preceding context honoring widows and a pastor would get double the financial assistance that you give to widows. So how does that work? Do you find out the Social Security spousal death benefit, and you double it, and that's a pastoral salary? No, I don't believe that's the correct interpretation. That's a confusion of categories. It's comparing apples and oranges. It's uh, confusing the the category of financial assistance to uh, wages for employment. And then some will say here's here's a practical thing you do you take the medium median income of your church and then you double it and that's what you pay your pastor likewise i don't think that's the best interpretation of this verse either because churches have all kinds of different situations of their um, members and their and their demographics and their location paul doesn't give what is a dollar amount of a pastoral salary because that's not his point sometimes we want easy answers from God's word because we don't want to think about it in in great depth. Say okay, just tell me what to do. But the Bible doesn't give us those easy answers. We get principles and we have to use wisdom to apply them to each situation. And many variables necessitate wisdom in how to in figuring out how to hire and maintain a pastor. There's some of these variables, location and cost of living. It's going to cost more to hire a pastor in New York City than it would in let 's say rural Arkansas, whether the uh, another variable whether the pastor is a full time pastor or a part time pastor, whether they are in vocational ministry or they're, or they 're bi vocational, what is the size of their family, what is the stage of life that they 're in now. Aside from that, the requisite to count a man worthy of such double honor is to rule well. So what does it mean to rule well? I believe it means to have good leadership. This word is used previously three times in 1 Timothy. It's used in chapter 3 when it refers to the qualifications of a pastor ruling and leading his own house well. So to rule well in the church, it means to superintend or to preside over. It's a word that illustrates fatherhood, actually. So here's the implication. Your expectation of your pastor should be good leadership. To rule well, and here's what this entails, and hopefully by me saying this, it'll give your pastors great confidence and freedom. Uh, It refers to spiritual intentionality. It refers to the desire and ability to help their congregants walk rightly with the Lord, to issue the corrective disciplines of biblical counsel and rebuke when necessary, to guard and protect the congregation, not only from external false teaching, but also internal division and exasperations. That's what it means to rule well. Many pastors, just like parents, get this backwards. They say, I want to be best friends with everyone in my church. You know how parents say, I just want to be friends with my kids. Pastors come to a new church and they say, I'm going to work to be everyone's best friend and just hang out and socialize and we'll have a cookout every week. And their ministry is built upon socialization and friendship, expecting that to eventually produce ministry opportunities. Like when I'm their buddy first, Then I could be their pastor. I think that's completely backwards, actually. Biblically, first, you rule well. You do the work of a pastor, and that will lead to close, long-lasting, trusted friendships. So let's not get that backwards. So it's good. It is good to socialize and hang out with your pastors. We do that. But that's not this verse. There's another passage for that. It's Galatians 6. It says, let him that's taught in the word share all good things with him that teaches. So that's good. But that's another sermon for another day. So keep the main thing, the main thing. Pastors ought to rule well. Finally, in this point, um, those who labor well, uh, those who labor in the word and doctrine, An elder must have an aptitude for teaching the word, for understanding it, for being able to rightly defend the truth of God's word. However, not all elders um, do their labor in the word and doctrine. Here's here's what I mean. Uh, You rarely find a church with the multiplicity of pastors where all of them labor equally in the word and doctrine. And this is evidently the case in Ephesus, which is why Paul singles out, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So it could be like this. Let's say you have 10 pastors in your church, but six of them are older, retired men. They're lay elders. They come to elders' meetings. They do hospital visits when time and ability permits then you have one that's the youth pastor, you have one that's the worship pastor, you have one that's an intern and then you have the pastor who preaches 45 times a year, right? The difficulty and complexity of a pastor's labor when it comes to the word and doctrine is often hidden from our view, so we might overlook it, right? Like don't some people think think about it that way? Like come on. It's not a hard job. All all the pastor has to do is stand up there for 45 minutes and deliver a monologue. Anyone can do that, right? Well, that's not true. I know from experience that's not true. I had to write a sermon this week, and it's a great process, but it's greatly time-consuming. There's a lot of studying and thinking and writing and discussing with others and listening to other perspectives, like the Jewish commentator Rashi. Um, And the pastor might teach formally a couple times a week and informally all throughout the week. So Paul says, Timothy, when you teach these churches and organize and make sure the pastor doesn't feel like a muzzled ox, right? Point number two, correcting elders. Verse number 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And for those that persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that all the rest may stand in fear. Now let's say Timothy does everything right in establishing, organizing, and teaching these churches. And yet there ends up being some pastors who are sinful, unqualified for ministry, unfit for ministry, or that they engage in some serious sin and thereby disqualify themselves for ministry. What is Timothy supposed to do? I want to be clear before we continue any more in this point that this is not talking about someone who engages in criminal behavior. If a church leader in any church is accused of a heinous crime, there's already mechanisms in the laws of government to investigate those things and administer justice. This passage is limited to charges that would disqualify someone from church office or require a public handling within the church to bring about repentance and requalification. So, moving on. The word admit in the ESV or receive in the KJV means to accept a testimony as legally valid. So when one of the Ephesian churches approaches Timothy and they say, Hey, Timothy, we're having this situation in our church. Our pastor seems to be very flirtatious with the single ladies. Or his teenage sons are rebellious and out of control, and he does nothing to correct his children. Or he has a side business of which the legality and ethics are questionable. Or the last few sermons he's been preaching He's been emphasizing social works and de-emphasizing the gospel. What do we do, Timothy? Well, first you investigate. Can these charges be substantiated by witnesses who would testify of the same? You know, pastoring is a vocation where you are going to upset and offend people all the time. A pastor who doesn't have people who are regu- who regularly complain about him is probably not actively involved in people's lives, or he might just be a feel-good, seeker-sensitive, motivational speaker trying to please everyone. And therefore, not every complaint needs to rise to this level. So the question is, are there witnesses? And why two or three witnesses? Well, there's safety in a multitude of counselors. Using two or more witnesses demonstrates a careful handling of the matter, Timothy and the churches that he trains must do their do their due diligence in handling matters like this. Also, the general principles here apply to all of us, not just when someone accuses a pastor of something. In any situation where you are hearing and receiving an accusation against another person, you should do your due diligence before you escalate. Here's a biblical principle that you need to remember. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him, Proverbs 18, 17. And I bet that all of us in this room have been burned before by someone who has come to us, made an accusation about someone else, which we receive and accept. We end up taking sides only to realize later that either it wasn't true or it was partially true but greatly exaggerated based on someone's subjective perspective, right? Right? How many people have been in a situation like that? I know I have. So we must be careful when we make accusations against someone, and when we receive accusations about someone, elders or otherwise. Now, in a church, um, what is the correct group to deal with these matters? Your, you know, your assumptions about church government will influence how you think about this passage. So, if you believe in a more hierarchical church government, like Episcopalian, or the new thing is multi-campus church, where you have one guy at the head and then you have other pastors underneath him, then you'd see Timothy sort of like a bishop who's the boss of all these pastors. Or if you believe in a Presbyterian form of of church government, you would think that a Presbytery or a council of elders of various churches in one region would be disciplining and holding each other accountable. But we're Baptists, and obviously I believe that the underlying assumptions for Episcopal or multi-campus or Presbyterian church government are incomplete if not incorrect, but it is not my objective to prove that in this sermon, but to explain Timothy's role here and make application for how these matters should be handled in churches like ours. So Timothy's oversight of the Ephesian churches is a special situation you need to remember. Timothy is in charge here because the Apostle Paul specifically has put him in charge, and there's no process of succession for Timothy, so there's not an, another person who has taken his place, and there are no longer apostles to appoint someone like Timothy. So, once a church is rightly ordered and taught and has qualified leaders in place, uh, likely their dependence on Timothy's oversight would probably decline. The goal is that a church's own elders and congregation are competent to deal with these things. So, in a church rightly ordered, you would have a multiplicity of, of pastors who would handle situations like this. Now, many Baptist churches are not ordered according to the pattern of scripture, but follow what I call the pastor-dictator model. And what do you do then when there's only one pastor and there's a credible disqualifying accusation against him? And that could be an awful situation to be in. And some of you have been in a situation like that. And so what do you do in that kind of situation? All right, here's a couple possibilities. Are there other leaders in the church who have pastoral responsibility that can lead the church in dealing with that matter? Maybe there's a youth pastor. Maybe there's a worship pastor. If not, is there a board of deacons or trustees that can deal with a situation like that? Like, who hired the pastor? Who signs his paycheck? Let's say it's nobody because he hired himself because he planted the church and his salary comes from a church planting mission board. What do you do then? Okay, are there older men in the church who, although not holding a formal position of church officer, um, they are men that the congregation looks to as servant leaders? Anyone like that? If not, is there another entity that has authority or influence over the church, a like-minded sister church, a fellowship of churches, a mission board to whom the pastor is accountable, or even a denomination? Can they assist in that situation. And all of those options failing, unfortunately, sometimes that is the fruit and trajectory of a church that is not rightly ordered. You know, we get into problems when we don't do things God's way. But let's get back on track. For our situation, how is a credible accusation uh, of sin dealt with? Verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Those that persist in sin, meaning that they would have already been spoken to and admonished, but yet they persist in the same pattern of sin of which they have been accused and it has been found to be true. Uh, rebuke Rebuke them in the presence of all, he says. The persistent sin is met with public rebuke. See, there's an order to how you deal with sin in the church. A private sin between two believers, I steal 20 bucks from Andy, someone lies to someone, that needs to be dealt with in a private matter. You don't deal with that publicly in a business meeting. But... What's specific here that necessitates a public rebuke is that it's someone in leadership, an elder, who is entrusted with spiritual authority over a congregation. And the sin is persistent after it's been investigated, after it's been dealt with privately. So this is why it uh, requires this type of handling. Uh, the, the purpose of rebuke that Paul says is that the rest may stand in fear consequences for sin are supposed to produce the fruit of godly fear. In whom should it produce fear? Well, in whomever is present for the public rebuke. And I think that there's two groups in view here, the church congregation and the other church leaders. And I want to be specific that it should produce a godly fear, not a fear like, well, that guy got called out. I need to be careful about my sins so that I don't get called out like that guy did. That's not godly fear. But godly fear reinforces and reiterates how seriously God takes sin in the church. Godly fear shouldn't produce more secrecy and isolation cover-up. It should produce more openness, more transparency, more confession, and more repentance in a church. A final word on this section, all the time I hear all kinds of horror stories about how churches dealt with or did not deal with perceived sin or real sin in their leadership. And I want to remind us, when we do things God's way, we get God's results. When we don't do things God's way, we don't get God's results. Okay. Point number three, be equitable in church leadership. Verse 21, in the presence of God and, and of uh, Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So let's ask this question. I said in the previous point that a church, in a church rightly ordered, it would be most likely, likely that the elders would deal with the sin of a fellow elder. So what if Timothy has to deal with another pastor persisting in sin? But that's his guy. That's his best friend in the ministry. He's from Lystra, just like Timothy, right? Right? What if Timothy is like, man, I don't want to deal with this man's sin. You know, he's a really good guy. You don't understand the kind of pressure he's under. Let's bring it into the 21st century and and make it uh, a little bit more practical. Say that there is a church with a youth pastor, and he becomes a, uh, aware of a situation where the senior pastor is lacking financial integrity, or someone finds pornographic material on his computer, but the youth pastor says, you know, I just can't say anything. He's a fellow pastor. He's my mentor. He's my boss. We've served together for 15 years. You know, there's a very real temptation and possibility in the church that that would happen. And so Paul gives Timothy this serious charge. Here's what he says. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, I charge you, right? That's that's pretty intense. So he's saying, Timothy, just as sure as you are reading these words in this letter I've written to you, you better be sure that God the Father himself is watching you right now. And, and so is Christ Jesus. And so are the heavenly hosts of angels. They are watching you right now read these words, and you're responsible for them. Keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. And that's pretty serious, right? And we could conclude from that that God hates the sin of partiality And prejudging, prejudging and partiality are complementary ideas. Prejudging is used in scripture mostly in the negative. It's to judge or condemn someone with a bias against them without reasonable basis for that judgment, without all the facts. And partiality is used more in a positive way to have an undue favorability towards someone. Now, in what ways then would partiality and prejudging be a temptation in ministry? What's in view here? So we see this all over the New Testament. So here's some examples. In Acts chapter 6, the uh, the Greek widows were neglected in the distribution of food uh, and resources. In Galatians 2, Paul recounts an incident where... The apostle Peter did not want to eat with the Gentile Christians because he was trying to impress the Judaizers, which necessitated him to give Peter a public rebuke. In James chapter 2, James tells his audience to show no partiality in how they treat people, whether someone comes into the church dressed rich or someone comes in dressed poor, do not judge or treat them with prejudice and partiality. So how does this fit into the context Of what Paul is telling Timothy. There's two ways. First, when dealing with uh, sin, the temptation will always be to ignore, overlook, or gently handle the sin of your friends and those that you're close to, as I stated previously. Secondly, the warning against partiality and prejudice applies uh, in the next section about ordaining men for ministry, because consider how it can play into those decisions. There will be the temptation to reject or overlook someone for leadership, a ministry position, eldership, or some other task in serving the Lord simply due to a preconceived bias against them, despite that person's qualification. Conversely, there will always be a temptation to promote someone for leadership, a ministry position, a teaching opportunity, eldership, or some other task due to favoritism, partiality uh, towards them, even though they may be unqualified. So Woodside, let us be clear Prejudging and partiality are sins. They ought to have no place in a church of the Lord. Point number four, be judicious in leadership. Judicious means to show good judgment. So uh, this is a section about ordination. And then there's another section in between there. So let's, let's talk about this. Let me, let me read these verses. Uh, verse number 22, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sin of others. Keep yourself pure. Verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So verse 22, 24, and 25, I believe they deal with the ordination of pastors. And then there is a parenthesis in this section that seems to have nothing to do with anything verse number 23. But let's go verse by verse and see if we can gain insight into Paul's thought process here. Right? Paul likes throwing things in there out of context. He puts the ox in there, and then he throws the wine in there. What is going on, Paul? So, um, so here's the principle for ordination. Do not be hasty, verse number 22. Be, or be slow, careful, careful, and deliberate in the ordination process. A little caveat, again, your view of church government will determine what you believe about ordination, and that will influence your, your view of this passage. Uh, it'll influence whom you think this passage is for. If, like I said, if you believe in an Episcopalian form of government, you would say that the decisions are made from the top down, like Timothy is the bishop, and then he hires new pastors. If you take a Presbyterian view, you would say that those decisions are made by a council of elders, and they get together, and they ordain new pastors. And as a Baptist and congregational church, we would say that the responsibility of ordination given to Timothy by Paul is now the right and responsibility of the local church, seeing as there's no more Paul and there's no more Timothy. And in a rightly ordered Baptist church, ordination should be elder-led and congregationally affirmed. Here's what I mean. The council of elders would determine a man's suitability for ministry by examining his life and doctrine. The ordination council does not ordain the man in a Baptist church. They make a recommendation to the church, and the church either ordains or declines to ordain the man. And once the church is affirmative in in the ordination, the elders will lay hands on the man symbolically and pray over him, indicating that he has been set apart for the work of the gospel. So that's why it refers to this as the don't be hasty to lay hands on someone. So Paul says, uh, don't be hasty to ordain someone because this is a serious matter. And he says, neither take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So to be hasty is functionally similar to putting a stamp of approval on the sins of others. When a man's weaknesses and sins are overlooked or ignored and the council of elders in the church ordains him regardless, that is to participate in his disqualifying sins. So Paul says, keep yourself pure from that. Now, why do you think Timothy or a church would be hasty in the ordination process? A couple reasons, very practically. First, I think the ministry just always has pressing needs. And there's this feeling that we just got to get someone in there doing the work to help with the ministry. Secondly, pastoral searches are difficult and trying. We went through a long one, well, a modest one, in the year 2013. And I think by God's providence, uh, it was good and it helped to purify and unite our church. But some pastoral searches are comparably awful. So a church just wants to get it over with and they end up ordaining someone who might not be qualified. So Paul says, do not be hasty. Okay, then there's a parenthesis in verse 23. No longer only drink water and use a little wine for your stomach and your, and your frequent illnesses. So where did that come from? Paul was just talking about ordination. Then he starts giving Timothy medical advice about the usage of wine. What does this have to do with church leadership? How are you obeying this verse in your life? Give you a humorous illustration. About 15 years ago, Pastor Rose was preaching through 1 Timothy. And you know, uh, when Pastor Rose preached, he went sentence by sentence or phrase by phrase. So there was a buildup to say, well, what's what's he going to do with verse number 23? And um, there was this elderly French woman at Woodside. And you know, European Christians have a greater appreciation for wine than American Christians do. So she was just waiting for Pastor Rose to get to that verse. And she was going to try to figure out what that verse meant in the Greek. And as soon as he preached it, she was going to come up and debate with him. Well, I don't know what happened. I don't know if she was pleased. But people get this verse wrong. So here, here's how. Believers who are favorable towards the usage of wine may wrongly take this verse and say, See, it says wine is good for you. And likewise, believers who are unfavorable towards the usage of wine would say, well, this verse only allows for the medicinal use of wine, but due to modern medicine, it does not apply to us anymore. So this verse is not a verse from which you can make a case for or against the usage of wine. There's other passages for that, but that is not the point in this sermon. So how do we understand this first? Why is it here? You have to think about it in the context of ordination. What does this have to do with anything? Okay, first, in context. In a previous sermon, I told you that Timothy is portrayed as timid and fearful. It's something that Paul alludes to repeatedly in his two letters Um, which which he writes to Timothy. He talks about Timothy's tears. He reminds him that God has not given us the spirit of fear. Here Paul alludes to his upset stomach and frequent ailments. So think of the character profile of Timothy in light of of that. He's a younger pastor. He's not only managing his own church, but he's overseeing the, the establishment of new churches in Ephesus. And sometimes he's going to be in a position to confront and rebuke pastors. He has to ordain new pastors. He has to stop the mouths of the false teachers and so much can go wrong with that right so how do you think that makes timothy feel i would think it makes him feel stressed out nervous queasy i'm sure it makes all his weaknesses and ailments feel much worse right so paul says if you need to take some wine and it'll help your stomach you should do so here's an application There are things about serving the Lord that are amazing and wonderful, but there's much in ministry that is hard and unglamorous. It's stressful. It's painful. But you do what you need to do to get it done. You may need to take an Advil after having a hard conversation with a fellow believer. You may need to have an extra cup of coffee when you stay up late practicing and refining your sermon. You may need a hot bath for your muscles after a long day of standing outside doing evangelism. And Paul says, you need to get it done. But if it makes you feel terrible, use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. Mitigate the negative effects on your body. Second observation and insight into this verse. Some scholars believe that Timothy was so careful about anything anything that would be seen as controversial that he would reject the proper usage of alcohol, even to the detriment of his health, So let me try to flush that out for you. Remember, Timothy was half Jew, half Gentile. And he would walk a fine balance between being acceptable both to Jews and to Gentiles. And when it came to alcohol, the Jews were fine with it. And they already had a scriptural and cultural stigma against drunkenness. But the Gentiles, the Greeks and the Romans, would be coming from backgrounds that were characteristically immodest and overindulgent in their usage of alcohol gentile christians who got saved out of that background may so harshly reject alcohol that they would condemn anyone who used alcohol and so it's possible that uh, timothy out of concern for the mixed culture of his church would stay far away from wine so as not to offend gentile believers and so here paul is establishing the permission for him to use wine if necessary for the maintenance of his health third observation and insight This is actually the one that might be controversial, not the previous two. Okay, third observation and insight. Paul wrote 1 Timothy closer to the end of his ministry, around 63 to 65 AD, uh, just 30 years after Christ had died and risen again. And this is after the close of the book of Acts, right? So in the end of Acts, he's uh, in Rome, and this book is written after that. And so it's evident here through this verse that the sign gifts of the Holy Spirit have stopped at this point, particularly the gift of healing. Timothy would have seen Paul heal other people as they ministered together, but Paul has not healed Timothy. Instead, he gives them medical advice. Why didn't Paul simply lay hands on Timothy and heal him, and his stomach ailments would be gone? Well, I think that's because there was a limit to the duration and the purpose of the sign gifts. They were around throughout the book of Acts to validate the ministry of the apostles, but they fade away as New Testament churches are established and as more scripture is written. So Timothy has to rely on common means to deal with his bodily illness. So that's a lot of exposition and application in one verse, and maybe not what you expected. But suffice it to say that when you come upon a verse like this, don't, don't just look on the surface and say, Wine, is it, is it good or bad? But dig deeper and let the context, let that guide you. All right, let's finish with ordination. Verses 24 and 25, they support the idea of being slow and careful in ordination. When you hear how serious ordination is and you hear all kinds of nightmare horror stories about other churches, it can just make you feel like you're never going to get it right. Like how can you actually know someone well enough and know everything about their life and doctrine to know if they're suitable for ministry, right? Doesn't that make you feel like this is an impossible task? Well, Paul offers some hope in the closing verses, verse 24 and 25. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going, bef- going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So he's basically saying, Timothy, this is difficult and serious, but it doesn't actually have to be rocket science. You're going to deal with people who are unqualified and qualified in ministry. Some, their bad deeds and good deeds are just going to be evident, and you will know it. And for some, you need to do some digging to find out what's below the surface. Christ asks, when the Son of Man comes back, will he find faith in the earth? What's Woodside going to look like in a 100 years if the Lord tarries his return? We've had some really good seasons of growth and stability in this church. Will it always be like this? You all know that I've been writing a detailed history of the church, but what's the history that the members of Woodside will write about us and our pastors in the year 2121, 100 years from now? They'll find the sermon, they'll find our Facebook page, they'll find the videos, what would they say about us? Will they still be holding the true faith of the word of God? For leaders in a congregation, the task of leading a church so that the gospel is preserved, protected, and propagated will be a daunting task. No matter how hard you strive for doctrinal purity, congregational unity, devoted leadership, and personal piety, at the end of the day, we're all imperfect sinners. We're going to mess up and make mistakes. But remember that Christ has lived in our place. He has died for our sins and rose again to redeem out of every corner of Queens and beyond a people for himself. The church has been purchased with the blood of Christ, and God will never turn back on the blood of his son. That's why we need to walk with the Lord, depend on him, not become proud of our accomplishments nor paralyzed by our failures. One day the church will be redeemed, a glorious church without spot or blemish. He has started the work and he will bring it to completion despite the weakness of his human co-laborers. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we we thank you that uh, you would care so much about the local church that you would instruct us in these pastoral epistles on how to be rightly ordered. Lord, you graciously gave us enough freedom to know how to use these principles within our context. But you have placed a great weight on us that we might follow your word rightly. Lord, I pray that Woodside would follow your word rightly. Help it, uh, help it to be the desire of every pastor here and every congregate here that we might strive that the church reformed would ever be reforming. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.